Our New Testament reading today is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And our sermon text is in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. Ephesians 3, verse 8. To me... Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is Lord's word. Please be seated. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, music folks. Man, good singing church. Can't think of a greater subject to sing about than Jesus and his unsearchable riches. Obviously, the sermon text is a springboard text. We looked at it last week under the letter U and uh, just thought it would be a great uh, verse to launch us into today's uh, study for the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Um, Scotty Smith, in one of his prayers from this past week, a lot of you get the Scotty Smith daily prayer. Um, Here's an excerpt from one of them earlier in this week. Uh, Lord Jesus, no matter how highly we think of you, your splendor and glory have no ceiling or end. No matter how deep we believe the ocean of your grace is, It is unfathomably more bottomless. No matter how astonished we are at your incarnation and work on our behalf, we have just begun to apprehend the inexhaustible wonder of the gospel. In other words, our minds will never plumb or get close to plumbing the depths of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. And then later in the week, as I was rereading an old Advent book that I've had for many, many years, uh, written by Michael Card, he said it like this. There are not enough words to say all that Jesus is. We have not enough breath to speak it. It is this almost hopeless feeling of inadequacy to communicate his awesomeness that gives passion to our worship. Now, that's a great statement right there. Let me read it again. It is this almost hopeless feeling of inadequacy to communicate his awesomeness that gives passion to our worship. I totally agree with Michael Card. And I confess to you this morning... I am totally inadequate to communicate the awesomeness of Jesus to you this morning or any morning. I have always been adequate, inadequate, and I will always be inadequate. But the good news is this. That reality fuels my worship of the one whose splendor and glory I cannot or could never rightly communicate to people that I love. And I pray that truth will enhance your worship as well. Oh, church family, may we always worship Jesus passionately. Let's pray together. Father, help us.
to do this. We agree with Scotty Smith. We agree with Michael Card. No matter how highly we think of you, we're not going to get there. No matter how deep we believe we've gone into knowing you, we're not going to get there. No matter how overwhelmed we are at, at who you are, we've never been overwhelmed enough. This hopeless feeling of inadequacy to understand and know you perfectly and to communicate who you are drives us to our knees, if not physically, at least in our heart, and motivates our worship of you. So, Father, help us today worship you passionately in song, in prayer, in in attentiveness, in receiving your word and listening to what you have to say to us. Be glorified in our worship for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's ponder together the inexhaustible wonder of Jesus. We're at the letter V in our study of the names of Christ. And our next title we find in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Breaking in a new Bible this morning. So pages are kind of sticking together still. So uh, bear with me when I turn pages. Okay, John 15. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus speaking, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So, Jesus is the vine. He is the vine. He is the true vine. He makes that clear. I'm the true vine. Now, this is one of the seven I am, great I am statements in the book of John, you know, statements like, uh, I am the door, uh, I am the bread of life, I am the way, O-W, that might be in weeks to come, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, All these, I am the resurrection and the life, we've covered that one. So all these great I am statements, this is one of them right here, okay? I am, which connects him to Yahweh, connects him to Elohim, to God. Tell them, you know, Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. So those words connect him to his deity. I am the true vine. He has to add the modifier true because the vine was in the Old Testament was the pre, probably the, the preeminent symbol of Israel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll see that phraseology popping up a lot. By the, from the writers of the Old Testament. But that vine was not fruitful. It was a false vine. A couple of examples, Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt, referring to the Exodus. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it in Canaan, in the Promised Land. Jeremiah 2, 21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So Israel was a false vine. By contrast, and Jesus makes this contrast very clear in verse 1, Jesus is the true vine who brings forth fruit unto the Father. Now here's the glorious good news. What is that fruit? Us. It's us. Merry Christmas. It's us. We're the fruit. He, he brings us forth out of death, 
plants us into his love and grace and mercy and everything that he is, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of him. We are the fruit. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Who are the ones who have fallen asleep? That were dead believers. Christ is the first fruit. So if he's the first fruits, then there's fruits to follow. And that's us. That's us. And then James 1.18 makes this uh, statement of his own will he will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Well, Jesus kind of alluded to that, right? Uh, what, what did he say? He said, uh, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Faith comes by hearing, right? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, Peter, I think, mentioned in 1 Peter, we've been born again by the word of God. So the unity of Scripture is so beautiful and wonderful. Don't you love the Bible? In every place, we're reminded of these basic truths, okay? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we, believers, should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, of all creation, we're the pinnacle. We're the first fruits of all creation. We're the pinnacle. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate first fruit. And he gives us new birth. He speaks life into us. He speaks light into our dark heart. I think 2 Corinthians 4 talks about that. And we are brought forth as the fruit of Christ's work of salvation. Now, let's consider in verse 2 the phrase, takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. Okay. Now, this phrase creates interpretive difficulties, right? Let's begin with what it can't mean. Let's start there. What this, let's begin with what it can't mean. It can't mean that a believer can lose his or her salvation. We, why? Because we let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? We, the analogy of faith. We, we take the whole Scripture, and we let the clear interpret the unclear. And just two quick examples from the same gospel, from the same biblical author, John six thirty seven. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. That's pretty clear, right? John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So that's, that's pretty clear. So we can eliminate the taking away as a believer who has been born again losing their salvation. We can eliminate that interpretation. In many other places in Scripture, we are taught the eternal security of the believer, or to use a more reformed phrase, the perseverance of the saints. The saints will persevere. Every true believer in this room, as well as in the whole world, is as good as glorified, according to Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. They, God will do this. He will glorify every person that he's called and justified. He will do this. So, again, we can eliminate the taking away as a believer, true believer, losing their salvation. So, I offer two possible and plausible explanations. First of all, it involves the placement of the prepositional phrase, in me. Other uh, very uh, well-thought-of translations places the in me in another spot, like uh, the New English t translation and the Lexham English said, he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. In other words, the fruit is not coming. Whatever that fruit is, it's not coming from the proper source. It's false fruit. It's fleshly fruit. Some of us, we, we may have been there. 
From age 12 to 27, I lived the fake Christian life. The fruit was false. It wasn't fruit in Jesus. The, the part-time youth director at the Methodist Church in Lithonia while I was coaching at Stone Mountain, false fruit, okay? It wasn't fruit in Jesus, okay? So, in other words, it's not resulting from abiding in the true vine. It's a false branch. It's a false branch. So, that, that would be referring to false believers like Judas, he would have been a false branch. Or people described in John 2, 23 to 25, where Jesus says, uh, or the, the, the narrative says, and many, many believed in him. Hey, great, amen. But then the Holy Spirit goes on to say, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in men. He knew they were phony. He knew they were fake. Okay. So that could be, could be one explanation. Okay. He, False branches are removed, branches that, whose fruit are not coming from being in Christ. But then another, and I like the second one better. Uh, the Greek for takes away can also be translated to lift up or to pick up. To lift up or to pick up. This might fit the analogy better. Pointing to the vine dresser, God the Father, taking care of the vine and the branches. Lifting them up off the ground. Especially like grapevines, they hang, you know, they hang from, uh, what do you call those things, trestles or whatever, what do you call them? What do you call them, Amy? Yeah, what? Tre- okay, the, these gardener people, they know what, you know what I'm talking about, okay. You lift them up off the ground, getting them to more direct sunlight. And isn't this what God does for his children who are discouraged or down or unproductive? He lifts them up. He lifts them up and draws them closer to himself. So... Bottom line of all that is, this is not talking about somebody losing their salvation, okay? The explanation can be either in me goes after, goes at another spot, or we can take the alternate translation. Uh, instead of saying takes away, he, he lifts up. He lifts them up, picks them up. Then in verse 2, and that kind of gets with the order, okay? Because verse 2 talks about pruning. Let's focus on that word, okay? Uh, it talks, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, it takes away, lifts up, and if it's not bearing fruit, he prunes it. He prunes it, okay? And all you gardeners know what pruning does, the activity of of cutting back the growth of a plant so that it will become healthier and produce more fruit. The word also means to cleanse or to purify. This refers to God's discipline of us, whereby he removes what hinders our spiritual growth, our bad habits, our misplaced priorities, our unbiblical thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So those are pruned away as God disciplines us with the goal of us being more fruitful. And then let's bounce down to verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's focus on that word abide. Other meanings for this word, uh, this Greek word to continue, uh, to stay, to remain, to continue in an activity or state. I'm thinking of the, what Jesus said in John 8 earlier in the, in the Gospel of John, where it's talking about people who believed in him. And then Jesus clarifies it. He says, okay, well, here's the, here's the, the, uh, the bottom line. Uh, true disciples, true believers will abide in my word. They'll, they'll cling to it. They'll continue in it. They'll continue to walk in it. That's why after every event we ever did in Solid Rock, camp, weekend, oh, how many were saved? Well, I don't know. Time will tell. Time will tell. W- will they abide? We don't judge salvations by bowed heads and raised hands. We judge salvations by, are they abiding? Are they continuing? Are they remaining? Okay, so that's the word abide. It's directly connected to the perseverance of the saints. True saints continue. True saints remain. They press on. They endure. Why? Because they are abiding 
in Christ. And here we have the secret to fruitfulness, the secret to a, to a growing, well, it's not really a secret, it's pretty clear, pretty plain, to a growing Christian life. This is the necessary prerequisite, abiding in Jesus, making our home in Jesus, resting in Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on him, growing in the grace and knowledge of him, etc., etc. You plug in biblical phrases of your own. And why is this so, so important? Because according to Jesus in verse 5, apart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. That's connected to you know, Romans 3, you know. Uh, in ourself, in our natural self, we do nothing, we can do nothing good. No one is good, no, not one. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And you say, well, but I, yeah, I can do something. I can go out and walk. I can, you know, mow the lawn. I can shop, I can, whatever. I can shop. I can, you know, I can do my business. I can, yeah, I can, what do you mean I can do nothing? We're talking about things of eternal value. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing of eternal value. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing really worthwhile. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing of real importance. Nothing that really matters in the eternal grand scheme of things. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just like branches draw life-giving nutrients from the vine, believers in Christ draw life-giving nutrients from Him. And our lives are fruitful for the glory of God. That's the key, for the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever, do all for the glory of God. And that's not possible unless we're abiding in Him. And, and how does that flesh out? Well, through consistency in the Word, through consistency in prayer, through consistency in corporate worship, through consistency in service. Ray Stedman said it like this. When our Lord says, abide in, abide in me, he is talking about the will, about the choices, about the decisions we make. We must decide to do things which expose ourselves to him and keep ourselves in contact with him. Like, like we just said, we stay in contact with Jesus by staying in the word. We stay in contact with Jesus by staying with his people. That's why a church family is so important. Covenant membership, the one another's. We stay in touch with Jesus by consistency in corporate worship. This is what it means, Stedman says, to abide in him. We must decide in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God to expose ourselves to Jesus and keep ourselves in contact with him. May God grant us grace to do that, to abide in his son for our good and his glory. I'm going to get one more V title, more of a modifier, more of a descriptor. Uh, Jesus is not only the, the vine, the true vine, he is victorious. He is victorious. He's the victor. In what ways? Well, let me start a list. I'm going to start a list. I'm going to just put four on the list. You add to it, okay? Uh, that'd be a good New Year's thing. You know, how is Jesus victorious? First, I'm just going to read some scripture here with very with minimal comment, okay? He's victor. He's victorious over the world. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's victorious over the world. John comments on this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, 
our faith, our faith in Jesus. Jesus is victorious over the world. Amen. Secondly, he's victorious over our flesh. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This battle, this battle we've been talking about at Kids Rock every Wednesday night, this invisible battle that, that begins the moment we're born again, the battle between sin, with sin, the battle with our flesh. Jesus is victorious over that. That's why we must abide in him. He gives us the victory over the flesh. Number three, Jesus is victorious over the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy, have victory over the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, John comments in 1 John 3 where he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was this, to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus is victorious over the world, over our flesh that we will continue to battle with until either Jesus returns or we die and go to heaven, and over the devil, and finally, last enemy, he's victorious over death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? <laughs> I, I love that. Oh, death, where is your victory? Holy Spirit seemingly to, to mock death. Oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is victorious, hallelujah, over the world, over our flesh, over the devil, and over death. In other words, Jesus is victor over all of our enemies. All of our enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil, and death. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Amen. Thank you for singing with me. I always love Ty's little boy version of that. He punched me to victory. I need those Holy Spirit punches every now and then. Yeah. Well, let's move to our thoughts for Advent, okay? Y'all with me? Okay. Uh, I, I, I can't stop, okay? It's fourth Sunday of Advent. We've got to complete it. Uh, I don't know who will be here next week, so it can't be a continuation, continuation thing. So you got to stick with me. Um, not only are these thoughts for Advent, but it moves us to our next letter, the letter W. And what I want us to ponder this morning is that glorious statement from the first chapter of John about the Word becoming flesh. Okay? John chapter 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This, these first 18 verses, I, I, I want to go there and read them just to get our thought juices flowing. But 
for I, I want to save time because I want to finish today. But between verse one and, and he talks about John the Baptist coming and you know the light coming to the world and men loving darkness rather than light. And in him was was life, and the life was the light of men. All those beautiful, beautiful statements. I'll read 1 to 18 this week in preparation for Christmas. And then verse 14, and the word, that word that was mentioned in verse 1, that was with God and was God, that word became flesh. That word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. He dwelt among us. I want us to ponder that this morning. You know, every fifth Sunday, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And after stating our belief in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we state our belief in Jesus, His only Son, our Lord. Let's think together about the statements or confessions we make about Jesus. We say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit which is a statement of his deity. As we've talked about last week, he was conceived without a human father. Virgin birth. Yeah, we've already covered that. As we said, this protected him from the result of Adam's fall, namely sin. Thus, he qualified as our spotless, unstained sacrifice. This miraculous action of the Holy Spirit that resulted in God becoming a fetus kept the Holy Son of God free from Adam's guilt thus making him distinct from us, while at the same time being made like us in the womb of a human mother. This is mind-boggling. This is mind-boggling. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Then the next statement we make together is he was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, whereas the first statement is a statement of his deity, the second statement is a statement of his humanity. This is vital because God's justice demands that only a human, a kinsman redeemer, one and always like us, can pay for our sin. We needed desperately a human Savior. We talked about this last week also. While his conception was not in the normal way, it was miraculous. Being conceived without a human father, not in the normal way. His birth was in the normal way. Nine months, he went through fetal development. If you walked into the refuge center's office and saw those charts, those charts of fetal development they have up on the wall, those charts would have been true or true for Jesus. He would have been gone through every one of those stages during the nine months of gestation. His birth was in the normal way. It was messy and painful for his human mother. It was a normal human birth. And the Bible keeps this divine human balance (laughs) intact in both Old and New Testaments. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, that's humanity. To us a son is given, that points to his deity, the gift from heaven. Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, that speaks of his deity. Born of a woman, that speaks of his humanity. These texts both speak of God's greatest wonder, the incarnation of the Son of God. I love what Stephen Charnock wrote many, many years ago, quote, that God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man, are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love, that they astonish men upon earth and angels in heaven. But our astonishment never finds its completion, does it? As we say when we begin. Theologians call the incarnation of the Son of God the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. There you go, big million dollar word there. The union of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. This means that when we are speaking about the actions of Jesus, we don't say that his human nature did this or his divine nature did that. 
We simply say, Jesus did this or that. Example, remember the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Jesus is sleeping. Storm comes up. Jesus wakes up, calms the storm. We don't say, well, his human nature was sleeping, and then he woke up, and his divine nature calmed the storm. No, we say Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples uh, woke him up, and, and he calmed the storm. He was sleeping according to his human nature, because God never sleeps, according to the psalmist. He calmed the storm according to his divine nature, because only God can do that. But it's one person. Raising of Lazarus, another illustration. Jesus wept. Human nature. But he called Lazarus to life. Only God could do that. But the writers of Scripture don't say, okay, uh, as a human, Jesus was weeping. Oh, and then he became God and called Lazarus out of the tomb. No, it's Jesus wept. Jesus called, called Lazarus out of the tomb. That may seem like a minor point to you, but that's what we have to remember. Here's, here's how our confession states it, okay? Our, uh, the 1689 that we adopted several years ago. The divine person who made the world and upholds and governs all things that he has made is the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is true and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of the same substance or essence as the Father, and equal with Him. It is He who at the appointed time took upon Himself the nature of man with all its essential characteristics and its common infirmities, sin accepted. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, a woman who belonged to the tribe of Judah, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of God most high overshadowing her. And so, as the scripture tells us, he was made of a woman, a descendant of Abraham and David. In this way, it came about that the two whole perfect and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without the conversion of the one nature into the other and without the mixing, as it were, of one nature with the other. In other words, without confusion. Thus, the Son of God is now both true God and true man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That's what Christmas did. This is, this is mind-boggling. I'm inadequate. Totally inadequate. The Holy Spirit has to work, do work in your heart for this to grip you. I, I'm inadequate. The bottom line purpose of Christ's incarnation, we needed a Savior who is like us, i.e. human, to be able to pay for our sin. And we needed a Savior who is unlike us, sinless, for this payment to be accepted by God. We believe that Jesus is just that Savior. Our Savior is the Word who was made flesh. David Gibson sums it up pretty good when he writes, Sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment. But a finite human cannot render this to God outside of an eternal hell. See, let me stop right there and interrupt Dr. Gibson for a moment. If you're here today without Jesus Christ, you will pay this debt yourself. And guess what? It'll never be paid up. It'll never be paid up. You'll be, you'll be paying it 
in an eternal hell forever. You won't be annihilated. You won't be burned up. It won't end forever. That's how grievous sin against the holy God is. It requires an eternal payment. And you can pay it yourself in hell forever, or you can confess Jesus as Lord and receive the payment that he made in your place. We need a Savior, back to Gibson, we need a Savior who is more than a man. Christ's death, because of who he is as the God-man, the Word made flesh, is of infinite value and fully satisfies the righteous demands of an infinitely holy God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And why is Christ's death of infinite value? Because it was a sacrifice made by a totally sinless person. Jesus didn't deserve the cross. Jesus wasn't paying for his own sin. He's paying for mine. Paying for yours, if you're a believer here today. The crucifixion of Jesus ended a perfect life offered up for very imperfect, sinful, totally depraved, dead in sin people like us. The perfect life of the Word made flesh was crucified so that our totally imperfect lives could be redeemed. Hallelujah. Victory over our sin. What a Savior is Jesus, our Lord. So let's go back to our confession for a moment. In chapter 8, paragraph 6, our confession starts like this. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his birth in the world. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't that, isn't that an interesting statement? Because why wouldn't you say the price of redemption was not actually paid until he died on the cross. That seems like that would be the most logical statement, but that's not what our confession says. The price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his birth in the world, after Christmas. Why did the, why did the reformers, the Baptist reformers, state it like that? Well, because when Jesus was born, listen, Payment for our sin began. Why? Because we needed a perfect life. We needed a perfect person to live the life for us that we couldn't live. When the Word who was with God and who was God became flesh, our redemption was set in motion. Why? Because we needed a perfect Savior. If Jesus sinned, let's close it down. We're all going to hell anyway. If, if Jesus sinned, we have no Savior. John Calvin echoes our confession from the time when he took on the form of a servant. That was Christmas. Word becoming flesh. Christ began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. When Christ took on flesh, the payment price began. The register was set in motion. The payment was begun. And what's the point of all this? The point of all this is this. Jesus' perfect life saves us as much as his atoning death. We needed them both. In fact, it would not have been an atoning death if his life had not been perfect. It would have been just another convicted criminal being crucified along with the thousands of other convicted criminals who were crucified under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. The flesh that was nailed to that old rugged cross 2,000 years ago had to be the flesh of the God-man. Let me quote Gibson again one more time. Theologians talk about the offering of Christ's life as his active obedience and the offering of his death as his passive obedience, and both are necessary to save us. In his death, 
Christ gave himself up and received the judicial punishment for sin. That's the passive aspect. But he was an acceptable offering because he was a guilt-free and holy, obedient man. That's the active aspect that he spent 33 years doing. And so was worthy of taking the place of guilt-laden, thoroughly disobedient sinners like me and like you. One more thought on this before we move to a conclusion. Yeah, we're doing good. There were two types of offerings in the Old Testament, thank offerings and guilt offerings. Jesus' whole life was a thank offering, a sacrifice of praise. And at the cross, he offered himself up as a guilt offering, not for his guilt, because he had none, but for ours. So, so what do you say to that? What is your response to that? Two more quick comments from the Apostles' Creed since we started there. We also say about Jesus that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Well, in an in a indirect way, that's another proof of the Word becoming flesh. This statement is important because it places Jesus in actual history. You can find Pontius Pilate in the history books. This dude existed. Jesus is not some mythical figure. He was flesh and bone. He was a real person. He suffered under an actual historical person. And it points to his suffering as the suffering servant, suffering for the sins of you and me. And then we say he was crucified, dead, and buried. He was crucified, dead, and buried. Jesus was nailed to a real cross made of real wood with splinters and everything at a real moment in history. The nails were real, and they pierced real flesh. He really and truly physically expired. According to his human nature, Jesus died. His heart stopped beating, and his lungs stopped functioning. The flesh aspect of the Word made flesh stopped working, and it was because of my sin and the sins of every believer that has ever lived or will ever live on this planet. And his body... His body of flesh was buried in a borrowed tomb. I love what Kevin DeYoung says in his exposition on the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the Reformed Catechisms, a really good one. I encourage you to read it. In his book, uh, his exposition on the Heidelberg, the good news we almost forgot, he writes this, womb to tomb. That's how quickly the Apostles' Creed covers the life of Jesus. It skips his public ministry and goes right from his birth to his death. The creed does not make this leap to denigrate Jesus' teaching and miracles, but because those who wrote the creed, not to mention Peter, John, and Paul in the Acts of the Apostles, understood that the main thing about Jesus' life was his death. Now, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? Let's close by pondering that. The main thing about Jesus' life was his death. In other words, Jesus was born to die. The purpose of his birth was his death. Now, now ponder that. Don't let me ponder that. The, the purpose of the birth of Jesus was his death. That's an amazing statement for many, many reasons. But one reason is that statement is not true for anyone else who's ever lived. That's not a true statement for any other human being. And as I think about that, that points to another, one of the huge differences between us and, and Jesus. No one would ever say that the purpose of someone's birth was his or her death. No one would ever tell anyone, you were born to die. I mean, think about it. 
All these wonderful new baby visits that Amy and I make to these young, precious young couples that have new babies. Imagine us walking in there, sitting down there, looking, oh, what a beautiful little girl. Uh, what a beautiful kid. You know he was born to die. We would never say that because that's not the purpose of our life. No, we were born to live. We were born to prosper. We were born to flourish. There are, there are biblical terms for us as believers. We were born to live abundantly. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. We were born to glorify God. Now, we, we lost that purpose in the garden, right? And Christmas restores it. Hallelujah. Last Wednesday, we did our last Kids Rock of this year. And uh, we, we did the lesson from the book they were using. But I gave them a bonus Christmas lesson. And I asked them, I, ch- I challenged them to compare their birth to the birth of Jesus. Using these four words. Born, die, glorify God. Okay? Two words in one phrase. Total of four words. Born, die, glorify God. Four, can, you, can you compare your birth to Jesus' birth using those four words. We let them think for a little while and never got what I was talking about because it's kids rock. But anyway, I just basically, I gave it to her. I, I said, okay, here's, here's, here's how I did that. Let me, let me share with you how I would do that. We were born to glorify God until we die. Okay? Would you agree with that? We were born to glorify God until we die. Jesus was born to die so we could glorify God. Let's say it again. We were born to glorify God until we die. But we don't naturally do that, do we? We don't emerge from physical birth glorifying God. The Bible tells us that. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not a single one. We can't glorify God properly until our sins are paid for. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. So Jesus was born to die so we could glorify God. The Word became flesh so He could be nailed to a cross to purchase our right to become children of God with the ability to glorify Him from the moment of our regeneration until our death. Thank you, Jesus. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending Him to to pay for our sin so that we could glorify you. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.